What's your problem? What is your solution? This is an interview series about solutions for people and planet. Modern science can identify and explain 4% of the forces that are active in our universe. Scientists have no clue about the remaining 96%, which is called dark matter. But that dark matter or dark energy is around our lives every minute of our days. Perhaps this reality explains why people through the ages have had mystical experiences that cannot be explained by science. Perhaps that is why there have always been mystical or occult movements. Mitch Horowitz is the editor-in-chief of publishing house Star Trek Penguin. As an author he has published many articles and books exploring new age and esoteric movements and trends. He wrote the book Occult America, a pioneering study of the metaphysical undercurrents of American history and their profound impact across modern life. His most recent book is The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Welcome to Camp Solutions. If the occult seems to be a sort of a threat in your work, uh, how did that come? Where did that come from? Why are you interested in the occult? I think my interest really was inspired in me when I was a kid growing up in New York City in the 1970s. It was a very unusual time. The occult was everywhere. You would see talk show hosts interviewing astrologers and mediums and robed gurus. I would rush home from school to watch reruns of The Twilight Zone and Dark Shadows on television. People were talking about Charles Manson and the Helter Skelter murders. And there was this idea that he was the dark prince of the youth culture. I remember taking out books on folklore and mysticism from our local public library. I was fascinated with newspaper horoscopes and I really wanted to know where did all this come from? I, I knew it had been commercialized, but I had the sense even as a little kid of nine years old that there were deep roots here and I wanted to find out where these roots led to. And I remember my sister would come home from school with copies of paperbacks of Carlos Castaneda's books. And I began reading Castaneda at a very young age and it held such fascination for me. And of course, I'm very familiar with all the questionable or falsified historicism that exists in Castaneda's books. And for all that, for all that, I was fascinated and I remained fascinated with the man. I felt like it's almost impossible to bleed the truth out of something, even when you dramatize it or even when you commercialize it. There's still this irradiating nugget of truth there. And it, it, it got under my skin as a kid and, and has remained so today. What is behind all those things, and that probably was the topic of that other book I just mentioned, The Occult America, that you wrote, um, you, your, your perception, your, your vision, your, your, you know, your observation, that indeed um, there are these other forces that we don't regularly see, but they are very much at play yes. uh, in the world, in the society that we're living in. So, so can you t say more about that? Sure. Uh, one can look for the presence of other forces as an impact on our culture in terms of belief systems, and one can also look for other forces appearing in our culture, in, our, in the sciences, and in the testimony of people across generations, and we don't know where to fit these things. For example, we are faced with a situation in our culture today, in the 21st century, 
and I'll put this as plainly as I possibly can, where materialism no longer covers all the bases. It simply doesn't cover all the bases. This is true, for example, in studies around neuroplasticity, which is not a controversial field at all. But the implications are controversial if one is willing to acknowledge them. In the field of neuroplasticity, as you and many of your viewers know, we're able to use brain scans to demonstrate that sustained thoughts over a period of time will alter the actual chemistry of the brain, will alter the neural pathways by which electrical impulses travel throughout the brain. This upends everything that we were raised to believe, which is in fact that matter controls thought, not that thought controls matter. And if you follow the implications of even a non-controversial field like neuroplasticity, what we're witnessing is our actual documented episodes of mind over matter. This is not supposed to happen in a world controlled by Newtonian mechanics. So our culture will accept the evidence of the field, will accept the treatments suggested by the field, but will not accept the implications of the field. So if you're studying questions of immateriality on a college campus, for example, good luck. Good luck getting funding. Good luck getting tenure. These things are still very difficult to talk about, even in the most meticulous and careful way, which is why in our generation, there is relatively little study of ESP and psychical phenomena going on in college campuses, even when it's done in the most juried, clinical, and meticulous fashion. Now, since the 1930s here in the United States, we have had serious clinical academic programs in ESP. Not a great many of them, but we have had a consistent lineage of such programs. The evidence that has been found in laboratory settings for some kind of anomalous transfer of information, some transfer of information that goes beyond the five senses with which we're familiar, it's, it's, it's incontrovertible. It's simply incontrovertible as far as statistical evidence goes. And yet, it is unaccepted. So we are faced with this kind of split, split personality situation in our culture where we're perfectly willing to accept evidence and statistics on an actuarial table. We're willing to let evidence determine what pharmaceuticals we take, how much we pay for our insurance premiums, not to eat romaine lettuce, and so on and so forth. But we're unwilling to accept the same quality of evidence when it comes to the immaterial. And it's building and it's mounting in psychical research and quantum theory and neuroplasticity, even in areas of placebo study. And we don't know how to digest it. We don't know what to do with it. But I can say with some confidence that I think anybody who looks in the, at these issues in a critical and serious way has to come to the conclusion that materialism simply doesn't cover all the bases. We, that, that, that's no longer sufficient in our generation. But we also don't know how to digest it. We don't have a, a language and, and, and a kind of intellectual and academic culture and, and faculty to, in the broadest sense to accept these ideas. So they haven't penetrated yet. Ronald Reagan was among one of the many public figures in American life who grew up on these ideas, who believed in these ideas. These ideas were almost in the groundwater of Southern California, where he and his wife, Nancy, spent three decades of their adult life. And he was very influenced 
by how some of this material translated into popular metaphysics, which we call the power of positive thinking or the law of attraction, or most recently, the secret. <clears throat> these were the kinds of books Reagan read. These were the kinds of ideas that penetrated him. These are the things he participated in. And when he would announce in his campaign speeches, uh, things like nothing is impossible, whatever you can conceive, you can achieve, Americans were capable of absorbing and actually very much liking that message because they too had been raised on generations of motivational philosophy, but a philosophy that actually went beyond the motivational philosophy that taught that thought is a kind of palpable force, that hope and gratitude and optimism and a determined focus can outpicture things in your world in very concrete ways. Now it's interesting, my previous book was called One Simple Idea, and it was a history of the positive mind movement. And I had a chapter in there about Reagan and these influences. And when the book was published in Mandarin Chinese, that material was censored. About one third of my book was censored by the Chinese government because they're very threatened by any kind of marriage between spiritual ideas, metaphysical ideas, and politics. That sets off a very serious red light uh, within the uh, government apparatus in China. Yeah. So it's funny, we look at Ronald Reagan and one may like him, one may dislike him, but everybody understands he was kind of this avatar of sunny thinking, for better or worse. To us, that's very familiar in the West. To the Chinese government, that idea, even in the 21st century, is quite radical, is quite threatening, because the notion that the individual has some fealty in his life or has some access to some kind of uh, influence or force of causation that goes beyond the material, that goes beyond that which belongs to the economic system, is very alien and very threatening. So good old Ronald Reagan and his Morning in America slogans uh, prove much more subversive outside the West sometimes than they do within the West. Well, the title of the Miracle Club is my homage to an actual group that existed here in Manhattan, where I'm speaking from, in 1875. There was a little cluster of people who got together on the west side of Manhattan and formed this occult salon that they called the Miracle Club. And they were interested in probing some of the things that you and I have been talking about, invisible forces, the uses of the mind, thought causation, along with mediumship and other things that people were deeply interested in at that time. Um, and at that time, it was just at the beginning of this new metaphysics that was sweeping through the Western world. The term that it eventually was grouped under, new thought, really hadn't even come into usage yet. It really wouldn't come into popular usage until the mid to late 1890s. People called it different things. Sometimes people would call it prayer therapy, mind cure, Christian science. There were different words and terms that were floating around. But new thought later on became a catch-all term for this new metaphysics. And by the turn of the century, Americans and others in the West generally understood what new thought meant. The term is not widely heard today, but it's a useful term because it really is this, this movement that is, is better known by its most popular expressions like law of attraction or power of positive thinking. But the principle is that thoughts are causative. 
That's the basic principle, that to some greater or lesser degree, what you think concretizes in your outward experience. Some people might see that as a psychological truth. Some people might see that as having more metaphysical dimensions. But that was the new metaphysics that was sweeping through the West. And I felt that the pioneers of that movement <clears throat> really did have a very, very good instinct for human nature. They were actually very shrewd observers of human nature. And some of the things for which they had an early instinct are being validated today in our sciences. I mentioned neuroplasticity, for example. Some of the very vocabulary that's used in the neuroplasticity field was echoed in the early 20th century by some of the pioneers of new thought. Um, a couple of years ago, Harvard Medical School, in its program on placebo studies, did a study of a certain migraine drug, an active functioning migraine drug. drug. And the researchers discovered that when subjects were given positive information about the drug, truthful, verifiable information about the drug's effectiveness, they would actually do better with it. They would actually do better with it. If you gave the drug to people in a control group, they would have such and such an experience. If you gave the drug to people in your test group who had received accurate, positive information about the drug, the drug proved more effective. Now, I contacted uh, the architects of the study and I put a question to them, which is, had they ever heard of Emile Coué? Emile Coué was a French mind theorist who was one of the key figures in the New Thought movement in the early 20th century. And Coué made the exact same observation when he was working as a pharmacist in the early 1900s in Northwestern France. He, as a, as a, a sort of homemade experiment, would give a drug or a formula to some of his patients, give them positive information about the drug that would presumably evoke a state of hopeful expectancy. And he observed that those patients to whom he gave positive information about a drug's effect would report better results. It was instinctively, instinctively, the exact same observation as the Harvard researchers made over a century later. The program's architect, the study's architect told me he had heard of Kuwait, but he was not familiar with that particular story. And he agreed that the, uh, the Harvard study's insights, uh, findings, uh, probably did comport with what Kuwait had sensed. You find this again and again and again in the New Thought field. These people had just an extraordinary instinct for possibilities that we're validating today. Now, of course, some of their ideas were metaphysical, extra-physical in nature. They believed in the fact that the, they felt that the mind itself could serve as a kind of channel or an artery for extra-physical laws that could actually concretize reality. And all of that sounds very far out and sounds very faith-based, but the truth is the people who are doing some of the finest and most lasting work today in quantum theory are themselves trying to explain why in particle physics yeah. behavior is observed that is not replicated in our, 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 our extra-atomic uh, macro world, our Newtonian conventional world. Everything in our world is as familiar to us as it was to our parents, as it was to their parents. It's a world of uh, plain substances, singularity, duality, 
linear time. It all makes sense to us. But all of that, of course, goes out the window in the particle lab where subatomic particles appear in multiple places at once. Uh, particles at vast distances have influences on one another. Particles collapse from a state of infinitude or a wave state into a localized state when an observation is made. All these things are going on that show matter behaving in ways that matter is not supposed to behave in. And all of it is affected by the decision or the perspective of a sensate observer to take a measurement or to not take a measurement. So again, some of the, the vocabulary difference, the vocabulary difference, but some of the insights and the questions that were posed by the early New Thought movement, the movement that produced this vast popular literature, it, it comports, it comports with some of the questions that are being faced today by people who are serious quantum theorists. Life is not behaving according to the rules in the 21st century. And it, 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 it presents us with a puzzle. It presents us with a puzzle. And it may be, it may be that by recognizing uh, the work of some of these early pioneers, uh, we will come to recognize that they had an extraordinary taste for some of the greatest mysteries that face us today. And the wonderful thing about the pioneers, and not everything about them was wonderful. They had plenty of problems, which I go into in the book as well. But one of the wonderful things about the pioneers is they turned all of this into a popular literature. They turned all this into a very widespread popular literature. And in all frankness, I love the literature that they created. It's filled with holes. It's filled with dead ends. It's filled with leaps of faith. But it's also filled with extraordinary ideas about the possibilities of the mind, the larger workings and possibilities of our, our psychology, of our psyches. And this literature has endured, not because people are gullible, but because the pioneers themselves were remarkably shrewd. Their insights were shrewd. And their philosophy and their capacity to create a popular literature was so great and was so remarkable that this outlook of positive thinking really got into the groundwater of American life. However, and this is one of the things I try to deal with in the book, when you're successful, you can also get very lazy. And the movement has gotten very, very intellectually lazy and childish. And there are big problems. And I try to address some of those problems in the book because I don't want us to lose this precious strand of thought. There, there, there are wonderful things there, and there are great problems there. First thing is, if, if it is indeed true, let's assume for our conversation it is true, and there's plenty of evidence for that, uh, that we do influence our reality with our thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, why then aren't we all living in, in, in paradise? Or why yes. aren't we all creating, realizing our dreams? What, what's the problem there? There are different ways to come at that, but the, the simplest way to come at it is this, and I can't say this enough. I don't use terms like law of attraction, for example, because I feel that colloquially speaking, when people use that term, what they really mean is that we live under one mental super law, that all of life is subject to the law of mentation. And my contention, which I develop in varying ways in the book, is that, first of all, we live under multiple laws and forces, or put differently, we experience multiple laws and forces. Even if mind, even if consciousness, even if awareness is the ultimate arbiter of reality, and I think that's a very 
important and large question that it will not fall to my generation to, to answer, but we must ask. Even if that's correct, the framework in which we live is such that we absolutely must experience multiple laws and forces. And I use the example of gravity. For a law to be a law, it must be universal and ever operative. But gravity will be experienced very differently on Earth than on the moon because it responds to mass. Why should the law of mentation, if there is such a thing, be any different? It's going to respond to outer circumstances. If people living in the Philippines got struck by a horrible monsoon, the place to look for the root cause of that problem is a shifting of tectonic plates, geological problems, weather patterns, climate change. It's not to be found by looking at whether or not their thoughts were vibrating on the same frequency, to all, use all these popular metaphors, as, as, the, as the monsoon. That's a terrible, terrible mistake. And it also highlights something that is childish, I think, in the New Thought Movement, a movement that I love and a movement that I'm part of. There is a tendency for people to speak about and judge things that they've never been through. If you've never been through a catastrophe, whether environmental or man-made, and the two may be coming one and the same nowadays, it's impossible to speak of it with any verve, with any true meaning. Experience is our empiricism on the spiritual path, on the ethical path. To speak in an absence of experience is really ultimately just to throw a rock at my neighbor and explain, well, this is why he's going through that. I want to hear from the person who's been through the catastrophe. They can tell me what they've gone through. So that's, that's one aspect of looking at it. On a more intimate scale, and I, I almost issue this as a challenge to people, and it's a challenge to me, but it's worth looking at. It's worth looking at. Here in the States, there's this popular expression, careful what you wish for, you just might get it. Now, that expression was popularized by the great Ralph Waldo Emerson. And Emerson himself derived it from an earlier statement by the philosopher Goethe, who actually wrote this. What Goethe wrote was, what you wish for when you are young will come upon you in waves when you are old. So be careful. That was Goethe's original statement. Now, that too is the kind of statement that one immediately wants to argue with because people can say, well, look, I'm experiencing things in middle age and at an advanced age that bear no resemblance to the things I hoped for, to the things I wished for. Goethe's challenge was, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure? Because it was Goethe's position that we are enormously forgetful beings and there are vast time intervals in our lives that are cyclical in nature. And things that we actually might have thought about and really, really, truly wanted in ways that we've forgotten or that we are apt to disregard have a cyclical way of coming back to us in waves. So speaking for Goethe, I think he suggests take a yellow light, take a yellow light and just examine your life as a kind of whole because things that you might be experiencing may be related in ways that you don't suspect to ideals and fears and concepts that you held when you were very, very young. It's just a thought experiment. When we wish, right? And so in this case, you refer to, or Goethe referred to, to early age, right? Which would mean that, that whatever we try to envision today, you know, we may, uh, 
accomplished perhaps in, a, in, in our next life, if, if we believe in that. So, so in other words, um, is there an enormous time lag? In, in, is that what we should learn from, from this, this way of looking at this? There can be. I think, I think there can be actually enormous intervals between thoughts and actualization in ways that we don't suspect. One of my philosophical heroes, who I actually happen to have tattooed on my arm, this is Neville Goddard, and he was a, a Barbados-born uh, mystic who lived and worked mostly in the U.S. until his death in 1972. Neville was one of the most intellectually stimulating figures in the mind power field. And he would often counsel his students that there could be vast periods of gestation or vast time intervals between a concentrated thought and its event. But if you could be deeply patient, deeply watchful, and deeply cognitive of thought and event over really extended periods of time, you would be surprised to encounter in an extraordinary uh, a constitution between things that are occurring in your life and very definite vivid thoughts that you had held to at an earlier stage. And he was always counseling people to be mindful of the period of gestation or interval. Again, these are experiments. I, I don't promulgate any of this in the book in terms of dogma or doctrine, but my challenge to people is, have we lost our taste for individual experimentation? Have we lost our taste for ethical experimentation? There's no consequence, no ruinous consequence to any of this, but we should be able to at least examine the question of whether we haven't gained full perspective or cognizance on the agency of our thoughts, on whether our thoughts are something that actually go beyond a cognition or motor skills. And I would contend that we have mounds of evidence, whether we're capable of digesting it or not, that tell us, and testimony, that tell us that our thoughts do go beyond cognition and motor function. I cannot uh, concede, as we were talking about, that the human psyche is all powerful within the framework that we live in. It is one extraordinary, underappreciated, and I would even say transcendental tool, but it is one. I also believe that friction, negativity, violence, in some regards, these, this, these things are the price we pay for being creative beings. It's impossible to be a generative creative being without experiencing friction, without experiencing suffering, without experiencing conflict. If we were still in paradise and the serpent had never invited Eve to eat from the tree of good and knowledge, then there would be no friction. But Eve, in her heroism, as I see it, actually did bite into that apple and gained the power of knowledge of good and evil. And she begat two sons, Cain and Abel, one of whom died in an act of fratricide. But I don't think that we can just say, well, isn't that terrible? These naked creatures in paradise disobeyed God's will and they suffered for it. I think that there's a different reading that can be made of that, which is that coming into one's own as an intellectual, as a worker, as an artist, as a financier, as a creator, as a homemaker, as a parent, coming into one's own as a cognitive, generative being necessarily means that there will also be friction in the world. I see no 
alternative to that, unless we plan to return to paradise naked in the garden and not having ever bitten into the apple of truth. So once that apple is tasted, it's, it's, it's I think, unavoidable that there will be conflict. And yes, I wake up that way uh, many such mornings, many such mornings. I tend to think of my way of thought not so much as positive thought, but as deliberative thought. I use the term positive thinking because it's clear and it's understandable to people what side of the street I'm coming from. And I want to be clear, but I think of it as deliberative thought. The idea is, in my mind, that if you carry with you a sustained, visualized, even tactile feeling, crystalline concept of what you want, that has an effectiveness that extends beyond just intention, cognition, motor skill. That, that we may be getting more into the metaphysical side of our discussion at this point, but that contains properties that go beyond the sense of linear time, physicality, and five sensory existence that we know. It's extraordinarily important. But can you share with us what are the practices that you, you know, maintain to, to, to yeah. One of the primary practices I maintain is something that I urge everyone to attempt. In fact, I often say to people that if you take one thing from my work, just one thing, take this. Having one definite absolute goal in life, one exclusive passionately held goal can open up vistas and possibilities to you and within you that you may never have realized were possible. There is something about having one definite passionately felt goal in life that seems to channel the agencies of our psyche like nothing else. It's more complicated than it sounds. It's simple and yet at the same time, it's challenging because I've just described life as a complex of factors and life makes multiple demands on us. But life also makes a very tough, tough bargain with us. And the bargain is this you are apt to get whatever you want or something very close to it, provided, provided you can dedicate your existence to one thing, one goal that is obsessively held. We think of the term obsession as a negative today, as something to be diagnosed and treated as a symptom. I challenge that. I would say that if you look at people in your life who you admire, you look at historical figures, whether it be Helen Keller or Winston Churchill or Nelson Mandela, whomever, you will always find that their lives were channeled towards one thing. What is that thing for you as the individual? Churchill's dedication was to defeating fascism. That was his, that was his life. That was his life's purpose. Uh, Helen Keller's dedication was to asserting human potential in the face of disability. Uh, Bill Wilson is a good example, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Bill's determination was that he had to get sober and help others do the same. He made the, he had the breakthrough insight that getting sober and helping others do the same was not two goals, but, but one goal. Nelson Mandela was to uh, extol the value of the individual in a civil society. Gandhi, so on and so forth. Steve Jobs, you know. Um, in all of the people's lives that, who seem to have left some remarkable mark on us, including in private lives, very often there was this one definable quality to them. It doesn't mean that you can neglect your health or neglect your family or, or that kind of thing, but 
I think that there is this possibility given to us that is unlocked only when we can concentrate our energies onto one vital, unique goal. And I challenge people, I challenge people to really search through the corridors of their emotions, their intellect, their psyches, really search and ask themselves, do they have this one chief goal? Because finding it can prove the turning point in your life. It has in mind. I speak from experience. Do you, uh, for yourself, for instance, give that, uh, is there a daily routine for you that you... Absolutely. Um, I have many daily routines. Uh, I mean, well, first of all, <clears throat> one of my daily routines is I never go to sleep at night um, without engaging in some kind of visualization or affirmation. And uh, the, key, um, the key aspect of that is at night, at night. Um, the few moments before we fall asleep at night are an exquisitely relaxed state, which sleep researchers call hypnagogia. We also experience it when we're coming to awakeness in the morning. And when you're in the, this hypnagogic state, everyone experiences it. The mind sort of bends and morphs. You experience things that are hallucinatory, kind of waking dreams, but you still actually have control over your psyche and your cognition enough so that you can direct your mind to hold a certain image, a certain scene, a certain affirmation. It's, 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 it's kind of prime time in a way for impressing ideas and, and positive beliefs, if I could put it that way, on your subconscious. There also is something else going on in the hypnagogic state, and I go through this in the book. Serious psychical researchers have found that this state of hypnagogia has proven to be prime time, so to speak, for episodes of ESP and telepathy. It's a remarkable, remarkable, naturally meditative time of day that we all experience twice, going to sleep at night, waking up in the morning in our natural 24-hour cycle. Use it, use it. I never go to sleep at night. I never awake in the morning without using that as a time for prayer and visualization. So that's one great key part of my practice. I have many others at 3 p.m. each day, 3 p.m. Eastern time, I enter into a, a, a period of, of prayer and silent affirmation for people who join in with me. Again, I believe that, that some of these possibilities of the mind are, are, are maximized uh, by group uh, participation. I make a steady practice of affirmations, visualizations throughout the day. I, I meditate twice a day. I engage in prayer at times. Uh, my, my day is, is dotted with a, a series of such practices. Can you at all make a comparison with other moments in your life, other phases in your life that you didn't do these practices as you do them now and you, and you had a different kind of experience in your life? Is, is there any from your own personal experience? I think when I was younger, uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was more apt to drift. I was not focused in what I wanted to do as far as my career goals, which is how I wound up in publishing which was a career that was very good to me in financial ways and in other ways, but I never really took to it. I didn't really have a taste for it, and I didn't like facilitating other people's work. Frankly, I wanted to facilitate my own work. And I spent years engaged in the kind of practices that I've been describing, along with a great deal of sweat equity, and I, I wound up publishing my first book, Occult America, uh, when I was uh, well over the age of 40, I must have been 43, something like that. I didn't really come into this aspect of my career 
until I was entering middle age, which is a period of time when many people think that you're settling and possibilities are shutting down. For me, they, they opened up, and I believe that they opened up. I believe very strongly that they opened up because I had focused myself so firmly on what I wanted to do as a writer, as a speaker, as a presenter. That was my, and remains, my definite chief aim, to be a chronicler of metaphysical experience across all media and all fields. It made a huge difference in my life. Following in the outsteps of a group of esoteric seekers from the late 19th century, Mitch Horowitz invites everyone to join the Miracle Club. To spend a brief moment every day for a prayer or meditation to acknowledge that our life is more than what we can see, hear or touch. Because as Horowitz explores in his most recent book, our thoughts do become reality. This was Camp Solutions. See you again soon.